when sustainability goes hand in hand with other things that are important to an entity, we see it stick. So we don't want to do this. We don't think about sustainability just for, you know, let's greenwash things. We think about it as sustainability as aligned with like the supply chain and geopolitical concerns. Hello, and welcome to the CVC Unplugged podcast from GCV. I'm Fernando Moncada. If you're a company in the industrial sector, you're going to have a lot of waste. Industrial processes are massively resource intensive, whether it's water or other raw materials. And what you get out the other side is not just the finished product itself, but literally tons of waste byproduct that needs somewhere to go. What's becoming increasingly clear is that in and around that waste is a lot of money. Anyone who comes up with technology that can effectively help large industrials reduce the amount of waste they produce, maximize the yield that they can get from those inputs, and extract useful things from their waste will find financial reward. I'm joined today by Ginger Rothrock and Megan Hunt of HG Ventures, the corporate VC unit of the Heritage Group, one of the largest privately owned companies in the US specializing in various areas of heavy industry. Rothrock, a chemist by training, is senior director at the unit and came into corporate venturing after a stint as vice president of technology and commercialization at RTI International, where she sat across a billion dollar R&D portfolio. Hunt, who has a background in marketing, currently has a role at HG Ventures, which is increasingly important in the CVC world, which is that of platform manager, carrying out the crucial task of forging and nurturing connections between the portfolio companies and the mothership itself. In our conversation, we talk about the increasingly important role that the circular economy and sustainability have in the industrial space and how critical it is from an investment perspective to couple those objectives with other things that are important to the company so that they can stick. We also talk about the myriad benefits that come to the CVC, the startups, and the corporate from focusing on platform and fostering the links between them all, as well as why the water sector has been so overlooked as an investment class relative to its importance to the world and our species, and why we should care about making sure that our roads are high-tech in the future. A quick reminder that we're breaking for the holidays after next week's episode, but we will be back in the new year with a great lineup of guests. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to CVC Unplugged, and above all, enjoy the show. So we're here with Ginger and Megan. How are you guys? Fabulous. Great. Are you guys in the, you, you guys are based in Indianapolis, right? Is that is that where you're speaking from at the minute? That's correct. We're in the great Midwest. Nice. It's a great, great town. It'd be, it'd be better without so many Colts fans, but other than that. <laughs> no, I can't. Oh, wow. I, I kid, of course. Uh, oh, wait, no, that, can we talk about the Pacers? Oh, no, we can't. Mm. Okay. <laughs> There's always next year. Full disclosure, I, I'm a long-suffering Bears fan, so I'm still oh, bitter about the 06 my. Super Bowl. I remember that vividly. I know. We, that was we've had, exciting. Right? We've had nothing else to kind of been able to get us over that. So <laughs> so I've always have a grudge against the Colts. But anyway, I digress. Thanks, thank you both for, for, for coming on. So maybe we, let's start the way we always do which is asking you about yourselves and kind of your, your, your journeys into venture and kind of how you got to, to where you are. So maybe we can start with, with you, Ginger. Sure. I grew up in an industrial entrepreneur family, so I've always loved making stuff. I decided I wanted to be an entrepreneur like the rest of my family early in my career. So I went to San Francisco in 2000, like all do, wanting to do something in recycling. And unfortunately, as a 22-year-old girl interested in trash, I didn't get a lot of traction. So I went to grad school, worked for a guy named Jody Sloan. We ended up spinning a company out that in, was in the energy and drug delivery space. I went from there to a large not-for-profit research institute where I led some engineering teams there in carbon capture, polymers, cement, and then ended up 
being in charge of our commercialization portfolio, where we spun out a few more companies. And then uh, one day I got a text from Kip Fry, who was sort of the founder of HE Ventures and well-known entrepreneur and investor. I was in Raleigh, North Carolina area. And he said, I'm doing something really interesting in Indiana, and I think you would make a great VC. You should come see me at this place called The Heritage Group. So I went. And the, and the rest is history, is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you, you, got, wait, you, you got your PhD in chemistry, right? Is it? I did. Yes. Cool. Well, I, I'll, I'll confess again that that was, that was not my best subject in school. I, <laughs> I still have, uh, have night terrors about um, covalent bonds and moles and oh, crystal lattices. We need all types, Fernando. <laughs> all types to make a difference. <laughs> So, Fernando, similar to you, so chemistry is not my background, and I am not a technical person, which is why I align myself with people like Ginger, because, you know, to your point, right, we all have our superpowers, and mine is not chemistry, but, you know, I also, I love people, which I can tell that that's your jam also. So, it's relationships and, you know, getting to know people. And so, I met Ginger whenever I was working at, so as part of the Heritage Group, we have a large hazardous waste company called Heritage Environmental Services. And I had been working there for a couple of years and I was asked if I would be interested in being a mentor for our accelerator program. And I was thrilled to get to do this wild and crazy thing. I didn't know anything about startups or, you know, even what an accelerator was. I think I would call it an incubator. And, you know, it was, it was so brand new to me, this idea. And so I was um, a marketing mentor. That's my background. Worked in marketing and advertising for a while and found my way into environmental services. So I've been doing that for about a decade. And um, so I was a marketing mentor in this program and I didn't want to leave. Like I would come into this area. We have an accelerator, uh, a large space here um, in our headquarters at the Heritage Group. And I was always hanging around and I was asked, well, you really seem to like this. Do you want to be a part of our selection committee and help shape the next cohort? I said, heck yes. So I came and, and participated and just, I was so impressed with the way that our VCs were evaluating these startups and, you know, talking about the team, the founder, you know, the product, what it would be like um, working with our operating companies. And I had a lot of, you know, just based on my experience at Heritage Environmental Services, I had a lot of feelings about how they would interact with as part of our culture at the Heritage Group. Oh, this person wouldn't be a fit. They're too abrasive. I don't think that they would be open to, you know, receiving feedback. And it was fun. And so I stayed in touch with Ginger, you know, as we were going through our accelerator programs and I just, again, like couldn't get enough of it. And so she's like, well, you know, would you ever consider, would that be an idea that we would ever work together? And I, we just continued to stay in touch for a couple of years. And then we started talking about platform, which was this exciting role that was becoming more prevalent. And so it was decided, you know, HG Ventures was interested in hiring someone for platform and I was probably the first one to apply. <laughs> And you know, the only one we interviewed. I, not true. Completely. I guess I'm sure that's not true. <laughs> but I, the idea that there would be a role that would be focused on making connections across the heritage group and getting to work one on one with startup founders was just, I was all in, thousand percent wanted to do it. And 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 to to be clear for for listeners, when when you say platform, you mean kind of connecting the portfolio companies to the 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 mothership itself, right? That's exactly right. So the Heritage Group is a super large organization. And it's one of, I think, the best kept secrets here in Indianapolis. Mm. People have no idea that what we have here. And sometime you'll have to come and visit us. It's it's a really cool facility. Um, Our headquarters is designed for collaboration and innovation so that our, I think we're at 40 plus operating companies now. 
we're all invited to come here and have meetings, to see each other, to bring in people from other industries, and to have really interesting, you know, disruptive conversations and share industry best pra- practices. So yeah, it's it's a really big organization, and it requires a lot of conversations. Um, it requires a lot of situational awareness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so it's something that's a lot of fun for us to to get to navigate together. Would it be helpful to give a little background on the Heritage Group, exactly what we do? Yeah, please, please do. Okay. So those who aren't familiar, we're an almost 100-year-old private Midwest company. So we're the biggest private company in Indiana. And we have, like you said, mm-hmm. a little over 40 operating companies in three major industrial segments. So this kind of goes to our investing strategy. Uh, heavy construction materials, environmental, mm-hmm. which Megan was part of. We're the largest private environmental yes. services company in the U.S., so managing a lot of industrial waste. So I think we'll get a little bit more into sustainability. And then uh, sort of chemicals, materials, and, and fuels as the mm-hmm. as the third segment. Typically, we grew over incremental acquisition in these sort of legacy Midwest-like industries, but we started the venture group about five years ago to kind of be a product of know what you don't know, right? <laughs> what is the future view of the legacy industries, massive change, sustainability, digitization, software eating the world, all of those things. So how do we get ahead of that in the right way? And And certainly, I think, you know, looking through your portfolio, you know, a big chunk of it is, is dedicated to sustainability, right? Which is always going to be a huge area of focus pretty much anywhere you are, but especially as you alluded to in, in the industrial space, right? Because there's just so much, you know, when you're making stuff at a huge scale, there's always going to be a lot of waste. Historically, that's gone into some dump somewhere, but but now we're trying to do different things with it. First of all, reduce it. Secondly, reuse it in in, in, in better ways. So let's talk about your kind of strategy, first of all, at at HG Ventures. Can you kind of lay out in broad terms the thesis that you guys are looking at? Yeah, absolutely. We have a fancy thesis about like the future of infrastructure and all that jazz, but um, it's really can the Heritage Group help? Can the Heritage Group help a startup? Then we can invest in them. Now, that's different than a lot of corporate ventures say, can the startup help me? Mm -hmm. So it's it's a bit of a flip than typical. So that, that allows us to open our aperture to a bunch of different companies. I mean, our major themes end up in construction and materials. I think we may talk about the future of roads a little bit. Sustainability in the circular economy is a big part of that. Mm -hmm. Green materials, electrification. And so we spend a lot of time with our operating companies talking to them about what problems they're seeing in the market, where are, where's, where's the interest lie and looking for startups proactively in those sections. But we also know you know, we don't want to drink our own Kool-Aid too much. So we try to be a little more out there, much more out there than the Heritage Group has been mm-hmm. historically saying, hey, these are the major themes that we like. Please come talk to us. And we try to be as accessible as we can to mm-hmm. any interest of any kind. From a from more of a tactical perspective, we run a pseudo fund-like structure. So we like to measure ourselves similar to a financial VC. So we're measuring IRR, returns, all of the things that a good VC of any flavor might do. We are measuring financial success and rewarded on financial success as well as strategic alignment. So we have both of those aspects. We allocate about $50 million a year to each of our investments. So, so far we've deployed about $250 million into, what do you have, 30-ish portfolio companies now on the venture side. And our first checks are somewhere between one and 10 million. So that kind of puts us in that mostly series A, series B category. We can lead. We can sit on boards through our structure, which is really great. We're very flexible with our investment. We've done very small checks. We've done some very large, even pipe type things. I'm not sure we'll ever do that again. But, you know, we're, we're able to try things because we're a, a large private entity, which allows us some, some interesting flexibility. 
And uh, as, as Megan mentioned, we also have an accelerator. So we work with pre-seed and seed stage firms in-house, in-person for three months. They, they just graduated last week or mm-hmm. a week before last. They come in and the focus of that is on pilots. So how do we get startups working more carefully with our operating companies to the benefit of both parties, right? Mm-hmm. First pilots in these legacy industries is such a challenge. Oh, yeah. So we can be great provider market inside. It's, it's a great thing for folks within the operating companies like Megan was mm-hmm. to interact with them and kind of change their, their daily, get out of their core business and have spend some time doing some fun things and, and learning from the entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I, I was going to say, Megan, I'm sure you're quite involved in that accelerator part of stuff, right? Absolutely. I was actually just on a site visit yesterday and I was asking, uh, it was an asphalt plant and they were, we were talking about problems in their facility and challenges that they're having. And one of the first things they mentioned was moisture sensing. And we had a company that just graduated from our accelerator that specializes in that. So we were talking about some of the limitations that they might face within the industry, within even just the way that facility is designed, how maybe we could work together to create an opportunity for you know, them to pilot there as well. So just always having your eyes and ears open. And I think my favorite part is listening. So asking a lot of questions, just because there's technology that we're interested in, that doesn't always mean it's going to be a fit across the heritage group. And that's okay. But to Ginger's point, we really try to focus on making investments where we know that we'll be able to tap into those subject matter experts, find opportunities to get that technology on site so that we can really add that value back in as the investor. Mm-hmm. I, I was going to get in, into the platform thing in, in, in a little bit, but I think that now is a pretty good time. So a lot of times in a lot of CVCs, you know, connecting the startup with the different BUs is something that perhaps, you know, is, is a kind of distributed function, right? So maybe if, if you're the one leading the investment, you're the one trying to make those connections and stuff, as opposed to there being a dedicated person in the role like yourself. Well, what have you seen as, as being like the benefits for for the unit of having that being like, you know, a dedicated role? Well, I think that we, we are, I would say we're a pretty flat team. So I think that in terms of if, if there's a lead investor who wants to be involved, I mean, that I, I'm never going to take that from them. So Ginger will have direct conversations with leaders across our operating businesses. They know her, they love her. But what my function, the purpose for why I'm here is to make sure that then Ginger can get back out and source and, and talk to founders and look for that next big investment so that then I can manage that day to day. And so it's nice to be just a direct contact for people. I, I, I feel like I, I, we're a pretty good team in that way. And so if someone's more comfortable going directly to Ginger, she's fine with that. But then I'm just in, you know, I make sure that then things are continuing on. You know, I'm it's holding I mean, both groups accountable, holding everybody accountable. And that's really important because, you know, working with founders, they have a different culture than we do at the Heritage Group. And our operating businesses have different cultures as well. So I think you can imagine larger companies have longer timelines. And that is really difficult for founders who, you know, every day counts. So that's something I pride myself on is just making sure I'm, I'm keeping up with the latest on these different conversations, making sure that everybody's following through on their commitments. And she's really nice about it. I, I try to do it with a smile. <laughs> my, my patience is not nearly as high as Megan's. So people with different personalities so that, you know, everyone loves Megan. Oh, she gives how, how gifts. Does the, how does the saying go? You, you catch more with honey than with vinegar, is it? That's right. More flies with there honey than go. vinegar. That's right. And I think that one thing that makes my job super easy is that HG Ventures, I would say the companies that we've invested in, the teams that we work with are amazing. So those founders and and the teams that they have, I think we've been careful about the investments and making sure that we the, those teams are also you know aligned with our values and culture at the Heritage Group. 
So it's really not a difficult job for me. I'm not worried about how an interaction is going to go. I, I think everybody acts with integrity. There's a, you know respect on both sides. So it's it, it with regard to that, I really don't have to do a lot of handholding. It's just more on the tactical side. Typically. But it's not without challenges. I mean, yeah. I can't, we can't say it's all sunshine and rainbows. That's true. Right? That's absolutely because right. We report up to the CEO. So you asked a little bit about structure. And uh, she's a fabulous, she's a family, a fourth generation family member. She was one of the folks who she and her dad were the brain, brain children, I guess, behind HG Ventures. Right. And so they have a very strong feeling that mm -hmm. we'll be around for the next hundred years if we're innovating in collaboration with startups. And so if we do run across, call it viscosity, which happens in some business units more than others. Is that, is that, a, is that a nice word for friction? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Still moving. Yeah, it's like friction. It's still yeah. moving, but it's just sort of like Yeah, I think a bit of molasses. So yeah. mid we were talking about the Midwest. I think that sometimes we're a little too nice. So often mm. people don't like to say no. Right. It's just you may you, you don't get a direct answer. And I think that most people across our, our businesses, they they see the value. They see, you know, the benefit of innovation and, and trying new things, but it is a risk and it's a lot easier to just do, I think, the, what, what, what you're comfortable with. So we're, we're injecting some, you know, some friction, you know, by, by sharing new ideas and technologies that maybe, you know, they agree it's a good idea, but maybe they're not fully ready for it. So that's one thing I try to encourage people. Let's get to know faster because it's okay to say no. And Ginger's coached me on that, um, since day one. It's really challenging. I, I want everything to work out. I want everyone to be happy in sunshine and rainbows, but. It's not always a fit, and that's okay. And and that's the cool thing about what we do here is that there's no requirement for anybody. Um, for when we make an investment, there is no requirement for the heritage group to use that service or technology or product. No requirement. And is it one of the things that many CVCs have to kind of you know a, a hurdle that they have to get over is is getting kind of sponsorship with from the BUs or or kind of buy in from them to 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 work with the startup in the first place. So what what are some ways that you've found? Are, are kind of effective and getting over that bump? I think, um, well, first of all, we don't, we actually don't have a mandate right. mm -hmm. for a business unit to sponsor. Mm -hmm. So that's actually really important for us. So that mm -hmm. way we can potentially invest in something that's relevant three years from now, mm -hmm. right? And the way we can provide help doesn't have to be a pilot. It can be market insight. It can be introduction to our customers. Mm -hmm. it can be, right. There are a lot of ways in which we help. And, you know, you might expand a little bit more oh, on sure. that. But I just wanted to be clear that one mm -hmm. of the things that we set up we knew it caused like said, friction or it's actually around getting to getting to a deal faster. Yes. Like we want to be able to do a deal in a month if we can. You can't right. do that if you're relying on operating companies or somebody to say, oh, yes, I'll sign up for this or mm -hmm. put their right. dollars. We have our own independent pot of money. Mm -hmm. So we want to know we can help at some point. Right. right. <laughs> well, and we ask for a lot of feedback along the way. And it's we're not asking them to give us a blessing necessarily, but we have so many experts. So whenever we're looking at a potential investment, we do diligence calls where we pull in experts across the heritage group. Um, we have a wonderful research group and then all of our leaders across our operating businesses. Whenever we see something where we know that we have an expert in-house, we'll bring them together and we'll ask for the founder to, to give a pitch. And then we get feedback afterward. We ask for real feedback. Mm. And I think coolest things is that we also then share that feedback back with the founders. So right. unedited. unedited. So it's, a, I think, a mutually beneficial opportunity to get feedback from industry experts and then for our experts to get exposure to new technologies. Mm -hmm. So again, it's not always a fit, but I think it's a great learning experience all around. No, no I think, think that, 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 that that's super interesting and, and a really kind of 
useful function, not just for the, the corporate, obviously, but for the startup itself, right? I mean, it's a good way to kind of de-risk the investments that you've already made to make sure that they have something going on. How, how do the uh, the accelerator and the venture functions kind of interact? Is there continuity there? There is to some extent. And we've tried a couple of different models, right? We don't know if we have it right yet. This is our fifth year doing it. We have a dedicated team now for the accelerator. So we have three individuals that are full-time working on the accelerator. And the ventures team is sits separately, but we're all sort of report up through the same structure. We are involved in the sourcing, like helping get the right companies. We're involved in the selection of a company. And then as the companies are in the cohort, we are we're leading workshops on how do you pitch to investors. We're sitting with them to talk term sheets. We're we're doing a lot of the like the tactical teaching part, but the the accelerator team itself is responsible for the entirety of the program, which doesn't just include us. We're actually one of the only accelerator programs that has basically an embedded VC group there. Like literally, I can see the accelerator mm-hmm. from my office. It's they walk by my office every day, and so we're <laughs> we're part of it. We're doing socials, but we're not sort of responsible for the day to day interactions, and they can get feedback from people outside of our group too, which is also mm-hmm. important for them. And so we've made, we make an investment in every single company in the accelerator, a small investment to start. And mm-hmm. then I think we've done follow-ons with maybe eight or nine yeah, of the 40 right. that have gone through. Mm-hmm. You mentioned your fund structure earlier, and sorry if I missed it, but but did you say that it was an evergreen structure? No, we actually set it up like like funds. We call them classes. It's synthetic. So we invest over a, a period of, we had a four-year period for the first class is what we call it instead of a fund. And then it's done. And then we, we track our you know, follow-on investments in the IRR relevant to that class. So we can compare ourselves to other vintage 2019 funds, both CVC and traditional VC. So one of the things we report on to our investment committee is our IRR and compare ourselves to other funds. And what kind of time horizon do you look at then for, for your investments? Because I would imagine for some of your portfolio companies, the development cycles might be a bit long, right? Yeah. We actually do not have a, a capped, some arbitrary end date. Okay. So to that extent, it's we get some of the benefits of being like a VC, but without the limitations like an artificial end date where we have to have liquidity. Right. I mean, the Heritage Group has been around for a hundred years. Like, right. We're used to you know buying and holding, so when it makes sense, we can let other investors drive liquidity, or we can take alternative positions or, or hold on to things when it makes sense for us and the entrepreneur. That makes sense. And well, well and to, to 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 that end, I guess well, one of as we mentioned, going back to the sustainability piece, that, that's a that's a theme that's going to be ongoing for for a long time, for decades to come. So 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 maybe maybe give the listeners a bit more of an idea of, of of how important that has become, especially in recent years in the industrial space. Yeah, and we'll we'll keep the politics out of it, right? I, we see sustainability. <laughs> we'll see sustainability. Have you ever done improv? So you ever heard the concept of yes and right? Yeah, yeah. So when sustainability goes hand in hand with other things that are important to an entity, we see it stick. So we don't want to do this. We don't think about sustainability just for, you know, let's greenwash things. We think about it as sustainability as aligned with like the supply chain and geopolitical concerns, right? There's circular economy or hyper-local supply chains with innovation where it is sustainable, but it's also uh, solving an issue with supply chain or or labor, right? Like businesses are having a really hard time attracting new employees and keeping the ones that we've got. So they're looking to automation, which in many cases has a sustainability bent, right? We're solving a problem with labor, but we also happen to be more sustainable. Or talent, right? We know investing in companies that has a sustainability angle will help attract talent 
there's so many folks coming out of school these days who are super excited about having envir- an environmental impact and have grown up in this sort of climate change era that we know that attracting great talent and engineering talent to the startups in which we fund will be will be easier. And there's there's more like that, right? We can talk about there's not a price on carbon in some geographies and what's the cost of water and other things. We are seeing signals of those economics changing also. Products that use a bunch of water or CO2 are, are more risky, right, for the, for the large entities. And so when it's labeled almost as risk, sustainability, sustainability wins. So it's almost like nanotechnology. You don't want to say the word like you're still using it, but you don't want to say it. There's some interesting implications there. I think, right, I think right. it's becoming an underpinning of all innovation now. Like everything has a sustainability angle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, and to your point about kind of keeping the politics out of it, I would imagine that it shouldn't kind of rely on 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 the kind of regulatory framework changing, right? Because law, laws kind of come and go. Yeah, then- I mean, exactly, exactly. It's like th- there's metrics and mandates and regulation that's driven here related to sustainability, but you never want to rely on it as a venture return. Right. But we have, I mean, we started Heritage Environmental when the EPA was started. Mm -hmm. So our company in it's like 50 plus years. Yep. That's right. 1970. So we've been all about sustainability, Mm -hmm. basically our whole existence. And I think the term sustainability has weight, you know, and and sometimes that can be negative um, when you're working with large industrial manufacturers where I think they all agree that it's important, but they have to be responsible for, to their stakeholders and so um, we, we love the term circular economy and talking about the triple bottom line. And you know, there's all sorts of you know, different ways that um, it can be presented. But at the end of the day, if you're able to um, improve efficiency, reduce cost, there's a benefit to sustainable practices. And so that's how I think the Heritage Group, we always talk about just, I mean, it's, it's the right thing to do, both for the planet, but also for your business. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you guys have a few investments in the battery space and in circular economy for Batteries and and obviously being in the states, especially one of the biggest kind of sticking points in the battery space right now is, is the supply chain itself. Right. Not too long ago, we kind of uh, we we came out with a with a report on batteries and and one of the big things was uh, which anyone listening can see at globalventuring.com. Little shameless plug there. But but one of the things was there, there's so many constraints on the supply chain that going back to recycled materials is is becoming well, it's going to be very lucrative. Is that now, how recent is that as a trend? I'd say it's it's very recent. Yeah, uh, just in the last couple of years. Yeah, the last three or four years. Mm-hmm. We, um, shameless plug ourselves, we have, Serba is one of our operating companies. So it's actually the largest battery recycling company in North America. Mm-hmm. Um, it was rebranded from a couple of other battery recycling companies that were agglomerated or mm-hmm. whatever the right word is there. You can tell I'm a chemist and not a finance person. <laughs> <laughs> like, I love it. I'm like, roll up. I think that's the right yeah, word. There you go. And they'd been doing battery recycling for 30 years, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But the value of those materials, it was lead acid or foam batteries, was not nearly as interesting. And so the margins on those businesses were much less. Mm-hmm. The, the one great thing that groups like Lifecycle and Redwood and the, and the big flashy investments that were made a couple of years ago, it's shown, it's shown a light on mm-hmm. both the, the challenge that's going to face the world as critical resources dwindle, also the environmental impact. And then, you know, sort of our use of these materials as electrification, what's going to happen there? It just brought everything into the public mm-hmm. that I think a lot of folks in the industrial sector have known about. I mean, we all care about our supply chains and really think mm-hmm. deeply about them for the long term. But now people know it, right? Mm-hmm. Which is great for innovation mm-hmm. and, and people thinking about recycling every day. Mm-hmm. But 
but also create some hype that <laughs> sometimes uh, challenges our industries from the venture side. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Is, is that because it becomes kind of difficult, more difficult to kind of assess the, the viability of an investment? If, if, where does the challenge go into that? I mean, as a venture investor, it drives up the prices. So there's that. Uh, right, I would say okay. we've seen right, a, yeah. the, the nice thing go. about being a corporate venture that has materials expertise is we see these sort of hypey startups mm-hmm. and we can pretty quickly by tapping into mm-hmm. like Megan's resources within the company say, is this a real thing? Like, really dig deep and, and do deep technical diligence mm-hmm. and ferret out a lot of these questionable startups. Yeah, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors, right? <laughs> exactly. Like which ones are really based yeah. on, you know, some technology breakthrough and which ones are sort of jumping on the bandwagon. Mm-hmm. And, and you're seeing that now. And, you know, that was battery recycling. You're seeing now that and PFAS remediation mm-hmm. or SAF, like people or AI, right? We can't do a podcast without saying AI today, right? AI. Let's take no, what no, we're no, doing no, for it in. There we go. Check the box for AI. <laughs> recasting whatever their innovation is in, you know, something that's more likely to get funded. And I don't blame mm-hmm. an entrepreneur for that, but you oh. just have to be cautious. And if, if we were having this conversation two years ago, say at the end of 2021, when the market was at its height and, and everyone was kind of drowning in, in capital, would that have been a harder thing to do, sussing out the ones that were mostly hype? I think I think things are moving fast. Again, the nice thing about being in a legacy industry company is we didn't we don't have like public shareholders and private company that mm-hmm. that are like for, like forcing us to do things. So we kind of hung back. I mean, we decided to not make an investment, not look at the hydrogen industry because mm-hmm. that was going crazy. And I'm like, let's let the dust settle. Mm-hmm. Like we're here, mm-hmm. we're gonna have capital. Like we have a a very long time horizon for investment that's committed to us. And so we don't have, we don't feel like we have to, I mean, it's hard not to get caught up in it. No, it's, it's very exciting. And I think we, we want to, again, being part of doing the right thing. And as a, as a consumer, right? Like EV adoption has been held up by concern around, you know, what's going to happen with these batteries when they reach end of life. And I, I know personally, I was thrilled whenever I learned about our acquisitions around battery recycling and then the, the formation of Serba. And I think then that gives our, our venture team having, again, access to those experts and 30 years of experience, right? Like they're able to help us suss out what's real and what's not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and from, a, from a platform point of view, does, does having, say you, you invest in a company with, 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 you know, that's focused on a technology that's maybe a bit ahead of the curve at the minute, does that make it harder to integrate them into into the rest of the heritage group. I think that it do- it certainly does. Yeah. But I do again the mutual the mutual benefit of having a corporate venture arm. So I think there's a lot of interest in what we're doing and while it may not necessarily be a fit for one of our operating businesses today, they really enjoy the conversations and so mm-hmm. there's there's benefit there's learning. We'll do for example lunch and learns where we'll bring a team in or do it virtually. So while it may not be something that they would want to make you know, they would want to sign a contract, you know, to work with them today, it's in the back of their mind. And so they do follow it. I, I get people from across the heritage group who, whenever we made an investment, for example, in circular, so supply chain, supply chain traceability, I received several emails from people I was shocked to hear from that they, they were following it. They were interested and excited. While they're not customers today, they're very interested in, and I'm sure over the next few years, they likely will want to either work with this company or someone like that because they see the value. Yeah. And I'd say it took us at least three years to establish the right kind of credibility to say our early investments are actually interesting. Not all of them are going to be, right? Mm-hmm. 
but it did it did take about three years, I would say, for anyone listening that's you know sort of new to this for for us to prove out that the things we're investing in would have value mm -hmm. to the heritage group, just like we have value to the startups. Mm -hmm. So and and I guess to to do that, you you had to maybe show you know, one or two success stories, right, to them to 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 see which ones work. Well, the nice thing about having accelerator is that we we measure success not just through financial return or doing pilots, but also through the people side. And so we're actually measured on our engagement with the heritage group, which of course make it mm -hmm. as, a, as a huge help on that. But how many people are touching startups that, that are employees of the, of the heritage group in some way? And, and programs like the Accelerator, which may not be a huge financial lift from like, I mean, the total budget of the Accelerator is maybe one of our average investment sizes, right? Mm -hmm. Like somewhere in that three to $5 million range. That just provides so many opportunities for folks to learn something new or engage in a way that's just different, and people get excited about that. Yeah. Yeah. No. They. They. Anything new and shiny. Everyone. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone. And running. it's a real feather in the cap too for our operating businesses when they're talking with their customers to be able to share, hey we have a venture arm. Here's some really interesting companies mm -hmm. we've invested in. So Ginger and I have had fun meetings um, where we've been pulled in and, and to meet like customers. BD. Yeah, we've prospects. been on BD calls. Yeah. Now. Um, so to talk, it's, it's, a, it's a cool way to demonstrate, again, you know, just this, this forward thinking. We do things differently and, and being private. Um, we're not your, your typical vendor. So we get pulled in and it's a lot of fun for us. Um, so great relationships that we've made and you know, being able to demonstrate that we we're seeing, look, we see the opportunities for these future technologies and we can bring different resources to bear than just your average vendor. No, it's interesting, the distinction between kind of public and private, because now that I think of it, a lot of the, a lot of the people we speak to are listed somewhere. So what, what, what kind of advantages to, in, in, from a venture perspective, does that bring to not be a, you know, listed on the stock market somewhere? So I'm not an expert in public companies. So I will tell you, I have no idea what the requirements are, but I would say we can take a longer term approach, mm -hmm. right? We don't have to think about quarterly balance sheet. We have several co-investors that are public. And we love our CVC colleagues. We invest, almost every deal we've done has had a CVC collaborator, but sometimes people are under pressure because a quarterly return needs mm -hmm. to say X, Y, or Z. Nobody knows what our quarterly, I, I don't even know what our quarterly returns are. And so in some ways that's, we're, we're not a target or a potential cost center, right? From some folks, we can take a much longer term view. And to your question earlier about like, do you have a fund life or a cycle? We don't necessarily have to. We can also craft deals a little bit differently than, than other folks do. Do we want to, one of our companies would benefit from debt. Like, oh, let's just throw out a term sheet for debt. That's not something we normally do, but we can do it. Or maybe um, another corporate has called us and said, hey, we don't, this, this is no longer a fit for us. We're looking for some liquidity. We could do a secondary, right? Or we could, there's a distressed startup, we've done this before, that has a bunch of technical challenges and we've taken a majority interest in it and restarted it as a startup. And so I think it just offers us time, flexibility, and maybe just a little comfort. Like I don't ever, I, I feel like I'm part of the organization and not having to defend my turf 24 mm seven. -hmm. So. Right. And, and and that's comfort, not just for you, but I would imagine, you know, a lot of startups are perhaps wary of getting a CVC on the cap table. Does that kind of go a long way? It does. Yes, it does. Well, and it also helps like we get on the phone with them and they start, a lot of them are very technical, right? Back to our industrial conversation. They're like, spew 
recycling stuff. And I was like, oh, no, I get it. Like, I know what plastic recycling is. I'm a, I'm, I'm a polymer chemist. Like, I get you. Yeah, I'm, I'm a real chemist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, this is this. And, and because the heritage group is not well known, I think it's it's a bigger it's a bigger hurdle. It's harder for people to go and understand exactly what the heritage group does mm-hmm. as an as an entrepreneur, and so we do have to spend a lot of time educating folks and then telling them like, oh, and and we're a private company, like, and this is how it can benefit you. Right. You know, to the point. Like, you know, last time we spoke, Ginger was about water because for 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 the folks for for the folks listening, we will be we're coming out with a sustainability report in in, in a few weeks. Another shameless plug. And part of that is is looking at kind of the world of water and investment into it, and and you guys are, are quite involved in that area. So so at the risk of of you know getting spoiling the the article too much, and I assure you guys it won't um, too much. Tell me a bit about kind of your interest in that, and 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 how because again it, it's so overlooked relative to how important it is, especially when you're comparing it to to the carbon cycles and the carbon side of the sustainability. So so yeah, but what. You know, broad strokes. Well, what's your interest in it? Yeah, right. Yes, there is a water cycle that is equivalent to the carbon cycle. Both are necessary for the world to work. We're all about industrial, right? We are a, a major industrial waste manager, and the industrial sector consumes a significant amount of the world's water supply, right? So there's a lot of exposure to that. So uh, water is both a risk potentially for industrial innovation, and you know, an, an attribute, right? But the processing of industrial wastewater has not changed substantially in 100 years. Like you often still have people paying to haul water to offsite, right, or hire technicians to be at the end of a line, like performing manual testing and treatment. So that's a labor issue. So through our, our relationships with Heritage Environmental and Vitas, our operating companies that work in the industrial space, we're aware of some of these inefficiencies and customer needs. And so... Generally, I think there's a huge opportunity in dr- to address all waste going out the back door. That's not been a very popular area of investment. Mm-hmm. But water is one where there are some automated solutions that are emerging that like can monitor and treat contamination, right? So that in- enables the compliance side. We talked about regulatory mm-hmm. earlier. And then recycling of industrial water. There's more and more attention being paid right now to in-plant water use. So like microelectronics is a huge one. I think you and I talked a little bit about that, that these large fabs are now requiring recycling of water, 30 to 40%, I think, yeah. by you know in the next five to 10 years, how are we going to do that? Mm-hmm. And so thinking ahead of the curve, how are you reusing your water? That's going to require a lot of interesting technologies in the separation side, so like membranes that we've invested in or... Are some of the microelectronics also uses a lot of very valuable metals to your earlier point on batteries, right? So we've made an investment in a company that pulls metals out of wastewater and then you can reuse them as part of your supply chain. Um, and then there's, of course, the digital side, other investments that we've, we've made looking at, you know, how do you craft a, a wastewater treatment plant? So it's as effective as possible, lowering the carbon, right? But also the water. What have I missed? Oh, no, that sounds great. I I think that it's uh, being able to help customers do more with less by using technology and disruptive ideas. And I think it's really exciting to Ginger's point. I mean, this has been such a mature space for so long, um, both on the industrial side and municipal side, that um, I think people are hungry for solutions. And it's really exciting to see the companies that we've made investments in working on both sides of that aisle. Um, We don't do a lot um, here at the Heritage Group on the municipal side, but that's an area I'm very passionate in. So it's exciting to see that these technologies can help lower the cost of oper- operating expenses, 
so that these large wastewater treatment plants that they can do more and you know have you know clean water for all of their constituents. Well, even when it's not kind of in the municipal side, it's so ubiquitous, right? And virtually every industrial process you can think of. Uh, so have they been, has the has Heritage Group itself been kind of keen on, on, on collaborating with, with those startups, Megan, in your experience? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I would say, when we were talking about business development calls earlier, I would say the most common time we are pulled in for a discussion is when people are talking about wastewater. Really? That's interesting. Yes. That's absolutely So right. people are really interested because we spend so much time in that sector and it's unusual. How do you remove organic contaminants? Because it's becoming more expensive. Mm-hmm. No one wants to truck things. They're looking at their carbon footprint and yeah. trucking is such a huge part of carbon footprint. Like, have you guys seen on-site solutions for waste and water reuse? Mm-hmm. Discharge limits are getting more stringent. Yeah. Everyone's thinking about PFAS. Yeah. Like that's one of those... Mm-hmm. Hype like big, big, interesting things. No one knows exactly where the regulations are going to fall. They're better in your neck of the woods, Fernando. I mean, where, where, when Mark Ruffalo comes out with a movie, <laughs> people, people tend to listen. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, but, but you'd be shocked how I mean, until those regulatory pressures are in place, I mean, the, I mean, the hand slap that you get for you know an exceedance or to this up to this point hasn't been enough for people to make yeah. real change. And I think it's exciting to see. As these, you know, the regulations are, are shifting, that people are making those changes. And with PFAS, it's mm-hmm. litigation more than regulation in yeah, the U.S. That's right. Yeah, there's I a lot imagine. of liabilities there, and mm-hmm. people are obviously paying close attention. Back to public, public boards are like, wait, are we exposed to this potentially? This is a huge unknown for it's, us. Yeah. And so, how do we find solutions for, or see if we even have PFAS? And if we do, like, mm-hmm. let's get ahead of the curve on remediation. So mm-hmm. that was our latest. Either we, pay for, yeah, either we pay for the solutions yeah. Or, yeah. or we pay for the lawyers. Right, right. So. right. Yeah. <laughs> and then p- pivoting a bit to, so so you guys just, and you alluded to this a bit earlier, Ginger, but you, you guys just came out with a report not too long ago about roads and the, and the future of roads. And, you know, as, as someone who used to write about infrastructure, that, that it's really interesting to kind of take a look through. And if I can kind of summarize the general gist of it uh, somewhat reductively, it is, first of all, we're going to need, we're going to have a lot more demand for roads for a variety of reasons in the future, more people, more urbanization, et cetera, et cetera. And in the past, you know, we've always either built more of them or made the existing ones bigger. But really what we need to look into is kind of up, upgrading them technologically, right? Making them smarter. And that way, that'll help kind of congestion. Is that kind of like a fair overall kind of like three sentence summary of, 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 of the report? Absolutely. And you forgot to add sustainability. Mm-hmm. So it's about there efficiency, yeah. right? Sustainability mm-hmm. and safety as well. Yeah. So, yep. Yep. Those, you covered it well. Perfect. And, and so, then, so, so, so to that end, then what, well, firstly, well, as a kind of general question, where would you draw the line between a venture play and an infrastructure play in that context? Ooh, that's a great question. That is a great question. Yeah. That's a really hard one. I, I would say some of it comes down to like how much money do you actually need to show big impact, right? Because I think I think many of these projects are you know billion dollars, and it does it just doesn't make sense from a capital perspective to to do that, or from an IRR perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, for us, I think we like to go early, and so mm-hmm. for us, like. Our operating companies are great on the infrastructure side, right? They're mm-hmm. they're building the roads. We're think, talking about public-private partnerships mm-hmm. and and those large-scale, long-term, um, or even like a toll road, right? Like mm-hmm. that's a 
a smaller rate. What we're what we're interested in is very high risk, high reward over a reasonably short time period. And so for us, it falls more on like the sensor side or I think there's some in the middle, right? This is a great question because it's really hard to answer. Some things like these materials that'll take longer because infrastructure is weird. You know this, it's highly regulated. It takes a really long time for change to happen. So I think some of the sustainability side, like the use of novel, more sustainable materials or like recycling practices Mm -hmm. or alternative sort of structures to roads are much longer term Mm -hmm. plays that are probably more of an infrastructure play than a venture play. Mm -hmm. It's all needed. Absolutely. There's so much, I mean, cars have gone so fast. Like, like the technology curves for cars has gone so quickly and roads is just the same old thing. Yeah. We talk about that in the report. If you're a time traveler, if, you know, if you look at a car from 1950 and then look at a car today, I mean, it's so dramatically different, but if you look at the road, it's, it's, very similar. It's um, kind of the same. And one of the challenges, I mean, just the way that roads are constructed, there's a lot of funding issues that, we, and we talk about that in the report as well, where if we want to see the, the future of roads, we're going to have to pay for that. And yeah. so talking about unique funding mechanisms, you know, there's companies, one that we've incubated that's working to try to figure out how you, you can bring costs down, but improve your maintenance and do that predictively instead and proactively instead of, you know, doing it the, you know, well, every three years, we're just going to rip it up and start over. It doesn't make sense. So working with customers and road owners and operators to figure out how they can be smarter about their investment and then hopefully be able to carve out money to be able to do some innovative things. Yep. And it's just, I mean, a lot of this is policy, right? Mm-hmm. That's the hard thing is if, if roads are a, a low bid environment, mm-hmm. you're never going to get technology in there if it's, you know, which kind of goes to the, the infrastructure side. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to find a way to invest forward and think about things for the long term, right? What is the total cost of ownership versus mm-hmm. the initial cost of construction? So that's why I think on the venture side, a lot of the interesting things that are happen are around like sensorization of existing roads or technology there or use of modular roadways Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, the adoption of, you know, maybe a single lane on a highway that's sort of on an autonomous one, or how do you work with what you've got, right? These entrepreneurs (laughs) understand like some of these timelines are too long for, for venture type returns. And so thinking about IOT technology and intelligent traffic planning and those types of systems Mm -hmm. first, rather than really the longer term things that we also talk about, which is like embedding like things into the for sort of vehicle to road conversations. It's interesting that you mentioned, and this was something that I jotted down from looking through the report uh, about the proposal for dedicated autonomous vehicle lanes. And I, I thought that was a pretty interesting tidbit. And that's one of those things that I suppose would require, I imagine, some legislative change, right? So, so, so I guess how much of what has been laid out in the report can you kind of get started on from an investment point of view in the near term, as opposed to having to wait for some kind of regulatory change? I think that we we have to be careful um, because, again, back to venture return. So I think that there's going to be, I mean, like flying cars is an example, right? I mean, that's a little too far. Well, I guess they do exist today, but not in a, in a way that we would be able to add value. There was a technology, like we have a, a back to the Heritage Group and, and our teams that are actively looking at these different technologies. What seemed like pie in the sky a couple of years ago, I mean, they're making really interesting advances especially around some of the the renewable materials. And I know we've got a lot of conversations happening um, here around electrification of roads. 
So I think we'd be open to taking a bet and, and trying something new, but it would have to be, there, there would be a lot of different things that would be required to ensure that we felt comfortable with, with taking a risk like that. And for a CVC of an industrial corporate like Heritage Group, are, are roads, given their ubiquity, kind of a, a good vehicle for a lot of the technologies that you're focused on? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the interesting thing about roads is most of the roads are rural. And so you do have an opportunity to kind of test some things mm-hmm. yeah. that you may not be able to because we can go out and, you know, we're in Indiana, plenty of farmland. <laughs> we can go out and try some new things, some new materials, mm-hmm. some new recycling processes, mm-hmm. some really out of the box ideas. There's space for that, yeah. like literally space for, for innovation. And so oh, it yeah. just, there's one of the, one of the innovations we've touted is this thing called J band that we've done, which is like a seam down the middle. It took 15 years to know it worked because we put it down on a road, like out in the middle of nowhere. And 15 years later, somebody came by and was like, wait, why is this side cracked and this side not? Ah, there you go. Oh, so, so it literally, oh, it's so, crazy. so it's, it took, Literally 15 years to figure out. Mm-hmm. So it's like, is that like a self-healing material or something that you that you put down on? It's kind of like an adhesive almost. It kind of sits, there's a joint when you pave road, you pave like one side right, and then the other right, side right. and you have this joint down the middle. It's a thing that kind of helps them all adhere because those are the places where the defects happen and mm-hmm. then the cracks propagate from. This is like a, a really good glue essentially that, mm-hmm. that gets put down on that joint pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But we didn't know about it for no. like 15 years. So that is a challenge for like startups thinking yeah. about in- innovation in the road space. Establishing credibility and then having the longevity to then be able to test yeah. those assumptions so and hard. to be able to then, we were talking about you know the bid environment, um, to be able to have approval from state DOTs to use a certain material or, or technology. Um, it's, it's a real long-term challenge. And so for us, having access to the operating companies under heritage construction and materials, we're able, like we talked about pilots mm-hmm. earlier, being able to use some of these different pieces and having the relationships with innovative town engineers. Like I love those rural roads, being able to play and having people who are open to that. And then being able to have, you know, a- again, mutually beneficial sharing of data and ideas. We're very lucky that we can then create an environment in which we can, we can test new things that ultimately could change the way that we do, you know, road construction moving forward. Yeah. In terms of, 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 I guess, making them better connected as well. And, and this goes back to the, to the, to the autonomous lane, right? You need, on, 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 it's not just, you know, putting down some paint markers, right? It, it's putting down small cells all across it to, to enable 5G, to enable all that. So, so there, there, there's so much to look into. And, you know, I, I could keep talking about it for like another hour, but I know <laughs> we're, we're coming up to, to, to the end of our time. And I, and I wanted to ask you guys, cause we always have, you know, a, a segment at the end of the show kind of, for, for the benefit of any kind of founders or startups that might be listening. So, so first, I suppose, how, what, what's the best way for, for any founder listening to get in touch with you guys? And then when they're lucky enough to get in the room or on the Zoom call to pitch you, what is it that you want to hear from them? Nice. Love that. Uh, we're out there. Both of us love LinkedIn. So you're welcome to connect with us on LinkedIn. You can also email me. I'm grothrock at hg.ventures. So cold emails are always fine. I believe that that's a, that's a great route to do things. Same for you. Absolutely. Yeah. mhunt at thgrp.com or just, yeah, hit us up on LinkedIn or our website. We have an info at hgventures.com website or um, email address. Yep. We'd love to hear from you. Yep. And uh, we provide more information around our investments. Um, there's more information on the Heritage Group. It's all linked there on our website. Yep. And as far as, you know, folks looking to work with us, I mean, we do have a filter, like, can we help you? And we're mm-hmm. very open about that. Yes. Like our first 30 minute calls are always, you know, trying to decide whether or not it might 
it might fit. And then we do our, our processes, we do that. And then we do a full hour long call with our full investment team. So there's five of us on the investment team. So we go straight to straight to pitch. Um, and things we tend to look for are, you know, of course, the usual team market, blah, 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 attraction. But for team, I would say, you know, it's about the CEO. And we're looking for things like self-awareness, a CEO that knows their strengths and weaknesses, have identified where they may have gaps and is thinking about hiring a team around them to augment themselves. Right. So we also have like very technical founders often and like, do they have advisors or are planning on hires for business folks that have the experience and feel, or is there, you know, somebody's been in the lab and they need someone with scale up expertise. I think that's really important. They also have to be a great storyteller. One of our, uh, our senior partners is went to film school and he's a, been an oh, attorney. Okay. And so we tough crowd. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. But like, if you're really good at storytelling, then you're attracting customers, you're attracting other folks who join your startup, you're attracting investors. Mm -hmm. And I think the storytelling skill is one that's just not talked about enough. Mm -hmm. um, on the market side, right? Like we know a lot of things we invest in take a long time to market. So we want to see like scale and, and visibility to achieving market markets. And we want to undersee, make sure that a founder actually knows how long it will take. Nothing like having somebody coming into, I have a recycled material to go into the OEM space and we're going to sell commercially in two years. I'm like, you know, it's just like a four year process. Like we want to make sure that people understand what it takes to get into the markets they're going into. And it's fine that you're pre-revenue. Like we, every, basically everything we invest in is pre-revenue, right? But do they have a pipeline? Do they have referenceable customers? Do the customers understand the value proposition? Things like so people giving samples, that's what I'd have. And on the flip side, on the flip side, then what, what, uh, what, what tends to be a red flag for you? Oh man. I think a lot of times it's, it's a founder that's so caught up on their solution that they're not thinking about what problem are they solving mm -hmm. for? I mean, it seems so simple, but I'd say like at least a third of the calls that we have, they're like, I have this amazing thing. Everyone wants it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, who's everyone? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And is that just like the lack of kind of product market fit then? Yeah. Yeah. Or just the lack of spending enough time with your customers. Yeah. You can never spend enough time with your customers. I couldn't agree more. Right. Yeah. And then, oh, that so that's for startups. And then on the corporate side, what can corporates, generally speaking, you know, looking out at, at, at the CVCs, like, or do maybe more of or, or a better job of to, to support their CVCs and, and the portfolio companies? Well, I think that platform management is a wonderful role, just speaking from my own personal experience. But I, I think that it's really important to allow your investment team some room to focus on looking for that next investment and work on deals. I think that when your portfolio starts to grow to a certain size, depending on how big you are, it can be really challenging to provide the support that they need. I mean, those founders, they're going through some really challenging personal and professional changes after you make that investment. And so I think that making an effort to provide support, um, both from you know, a, a platform or just ensuring that there's enough um, resources for them to be able to tap within your um, different operating companies is really important. Yeah. And I would say, put yourself out there more. Thank you for mm -hmm. doing this podcast. Like, I really yeah. appreciate what you're doing for the community and GCV does for the community because mm -hmm. you're shining a light on what can be a very opaque part of the venture industry. So I think- more CVC should be putting themselves out there with their own websites, their own LinkedIn, yeah. like coming on the podcast Absolutely. like this, engaging with GCV. I think mm -hmm. that will do quite a service to the entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Well, we're always here for more engagement. So if you're listening and you want to come on, shoot me an email. 
we'll be we'll be happy to have you uh on and it's been lovely to speak to to both of you my my deepest apologies to any Colts fans listening <laughs> a, Ouch. yeah the bitterness of a of a of a you know uh of an aggravated sports fan is is eternal and will never go away um, but yeah th- th- thank you so much for, for for coming on it's been a real pleasure and i'm sure we'll be keeping in touch so with, with everything you guys do i'll be following it thank Thanks you for so having much. us That is it for the penultimate episode of the year, folks. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I have been Fernando Moncada. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from Inner Production, whose great work you can check out today at innerproduction.com. We'll be back again next week, as ever. Until then, have a good one.